Well, good morning, everybody. First off, I want to say thanks for being here today, those of you here in person, and if I look up there, those of you online via live stream. Have you had a good week? I thought I was prompted just to ask, based on Kent's message last week, has the Bible been a vital part of your life each and every day? I trust it has. We find ourselves today in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And as Tim read these five verses, there's a lot to cover in this short section of Scripture. Yet if there is a sentence that stands out among these verses, it would have to be the first three words found in verse 2, where it says, Preach the Word. And how is the Word to be preached? Verse 2 goes on to say, In season, out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, with all long-suffering and doctrine. That seems to be a rather demanding charge from Paul to Timothy. Yet isn't that the essence of why we're all gathered here this morning? To hear God's word preached? Oh, there's certainly singing and there's fellowship and there's prayers. And once a month there's the breaking of bread. But as Acts 2.42 states of the New Testament church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Thus the importance of proclaiming God's word from the pulpit. I should tell you that as I began this study, I couldn't help but think of Barb's grandfather. He was a pastor for years and years. I remember the first time I met him, I was really taken at how much of a godly man he was. And although I didn't really know him at all, within a few minutes I could tell his love was ministry. He loved to preach, and he loved to preach the gospel. Yet he told me early on in my conversations with him that he felt like many men were in the pastorate and had no business being there. He would say these men were fulfilling a job and not a calling. A job, for the most part, is one you choose, a calling on the other hand, is one Christ chooses for you. It reminded me of Saeed's testimony a few weeks ago and how he was going in one direction, pursuing something, and then God called him into the ministry. I recently read an article written by a pastor, and I won't cover all the contents, but this was the title, Things I Wish I Knew Before Becoming a Pastor. One, it will be the hardest thing you'll ever do. If you want to be a pastor because it sounds fun or easy, do something else. Two, integrity and a love for Christ will be a must if you expect leading people. Three, people will expect you to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because a pastor is always on call. Four, you must be careful while workaholism may be rewarded, it can destroy your family. Five, when people stop attending your church, it will hurt a great deal. It does hurt. Six, you will have to fight the urge to compare your ministry to other churches, for you will always lose in the comparison game. Seven, attacks from inside your church can be worse than from the outside. 
8. No matter what you do, some people won't like it. You will never be able to please everyone. 9. Your family will be profoundly affected by your ministry, either good or bad. 10. Spiritual warfare is real, and the enemy will attack you and your family in ways you never imagined. And lastly, number 11, you must continually strive to preach and teach the truth of God's word as the focus of your ministry. And then this pastor adds, however, however, after 20 years in the ministry, it has been worth it all to be a pastor. God has called me, and there is nothing greater than the reward of a life submitted faithfully to Christ, unquote. That described Barb's grandfather to A.T., he was commissioned by God to be in the ministry, and he was a faithful preacher of the Word of God for years and years and years, clear up to the point of his death. Hopefully, as I said earlier, all of us would agree that the importance of biblical preaching here in our own church is something we as elders and anyone else who stands up here should strive for. And away from me personally, as I study this, um, it, it's a frightening task to be up here and present this particular section of passage today. It's to preach about preaching. I told my wife yesterday that I was going to bring a mirror up here. Because the message is directed directly at me. How is Brad Smizer preaching the Word of God? It's scary. Then I thought about Timothy, as Paul impressed upon him this same task, and how this task is impressed upon basically every pastor as he presents the Word of God. My wife gave me a verse this morning, my delight is in the Lord to do his will. So my desire is to do his will today and to present this word knowing that in preaching to myself. So I titled this message Commissioned to Preach the Word of God. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for this passage, these five verses that say so much to me says so much to anybody who stands on the pulpit. What you require, what you really demand. Lord, I pray that I would be able to expound in a way that people would understand. Thank you for what you taught me, Lord. Thank you for how you have um, truly spoken in a way that I needed to hear. So I pray, Lord, that um, you would be honored in the words that are spoken. In Christ's name, amen. I broke this up into four sections. First one being verses 1 to 2a. So follow along as I read. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. I called these first two verses the seriousness of the commission. Anyone who has been called to stand before a judge 
in a courtroom and then required to raise your right hand and solemnly vow to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, knows the daunting task that can be. Paul's language to Timothy here in verse 1 reminds me of the mandatory subpoena and Timothy has now appeared in court. I charge thee, or I urgently and solemnly testify you, Timothy, before these witnesses of God and Lord Jesus Christ to realize the seriousness of what you are called to do. It is indeed very serious. And Paul reminds Timothy of this when he goes on to speak of the pending judgment at the coming of Christ by using three specific word descriptions, appearing, judgment, and kingdom. Paul knew Christ would one day make a visible and glorious appearance, and when that occurred, he would judge both the living and the dead as he brings his kingdom in its fullness. Remember, Timothy, as a preacher, you must live in light of this holy accountability, for you too will be judged on this day of reckoning. Your motives, your public ministry, even your private life will be judged. It reminded me of James 3.1 where it says for a pastor and teacher my brethren be not many masters or let not many of you be teachers knowing that we shall receive a greater condemnation or the stricter judgment. Therefore Timothy heed the charge which I'm about to give. And what was the charge? Preach the word. This is the main thrust that Paul shared and everything else in this section is related to it. The word preach literally means to preach like a herald. Now children, you may not know, what is a herald? In Paul's day, a ruler had a special herald, a person who would make announcements to the people. He was commissioned by the ruler or the king to make these important announcements in a loud, clear voice so everyone could hear. And I'm thankful my voice is amplified. Modern sound can do that. But clearly back then, your voice had to be projected and amplified like a microphone. Like this. The king has an important announcement. Please listen. That woke you up, didn't it? That's what to herald means. And that's what Paul is inferring here. Now, what to do when you hear the message? Well, back then, the ruler's message was very serious. And to abuse the messenger was even worse. So, to abuse the message or to abuse the messenger. In essence, Timothy was commissioned to herald God's word with the authority of heaven behind him. For it is the word of God that both sinners and saints need. Fast forward to the church of the 21st century. Sadly, many churches in this area have substituted other things for the preaching of God's word, whether it be man's word from the pulpit, entertainment, music, programs, or whatever. Yet God tells us that, his, that it's only his word that can change lives. As one pastor said, don't give the congregation good words. Give them God's words. As I said in the introduction, as I think through this charge to me as an elder and teacher here at New Hope, and to all the elders and teachers here, 
It reaffirms the seriousness of preaching to all of you. As Kent shared last week, his word is inspired. It's God-breathed. And I never want to distort this precious truth. Yet I know that I am a sinner and I will fail. That's why I would encourage all of you to be faithfully, I, I emphasize that, faithfully praying for anyone who speaks from the pulpit. But could it be true that many of you came here this morning and you had no idea who was preaching? You had no idea what scripture we'd be covering? You've never looked at it? You never prayed? I hope that's not the case. Yet knowing the seriousness of teaching God's holy word, I would hope that you would pray for the speaker and you would be studying ahead of time, prepared to engraft God's word into your own life. Second section, verse 2. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. I called this second the content of the commission. Paul continues on here in verse 2 to name four specific commands associated with preaching the word. And these are in order as we find them. Number one, preach the word consistently. Be instant or ready in season and out of season. The verb here, instant, speaks of both urgency and consistency. A pastor must stand ready at all times and in every circumstance. When it's convenient and when it's not convenient. When it's early and when it's late. When the crowd is large and when it is small. When affirmed and loved or when there's criticism. It reminds me of the faithful soldier which is on guard, never leaving his post. Preach the word consistently. Secondly, preach the word pastorally. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. I could spend a whole message on just those three words. But time doesn't permit, so let me go through them. First, the word reprove. The word reprove means to prove, to convince, to refute, or to persuade. It carries the idea of replacing incorrect ideas with correct ideas. So as it relates to sin, this is a command to help others understand the truth regarding their sinfulness. Pastorally, God calls the leadership of the church to know the condition of their flocks, for one day they will give an account. Hebrews 13, 17. Again, this accountability. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Rebuke. Second word. This carries a slightly higher degree of intensity than the word reprove. It means to call to attention the wrongdoing and actually give a warning that there will be consequences if the sin continues. And pastorally, the desired response you're calling for is humility. That's really what you seek, humility, leading to conviction and repentance. As one commentator said, if you enjoy constantly reproving and rebuking, you're likely not fit for the ministry. But, if you don't do it, you are a shirker of your pastoral responsibility. 
Proverbs 9.8 says, Reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Reprove, rebuke. The last word here in the text is the word exhort. Which in my human mind, when I was studying this, I've always thought of exhort strong, persuasive advice and admonishment. It's like a, I always thought of it as a next step up of pastoral discipline following rebuke. And if you read, some commentators do believe that. But the more I studied this, the Greek word here is perikaleo, which is translated encouragement. I now believe exhort is saying to a pastor, you must balance reproof and rebuke with love and meekness, encouragement. Or as one author stated, every way of strengthening and establishing souls in the fear and love of God is to be tried. Every way. In fact, many commentators often picture to exhort as a coach encouraging an athlete in training. For isn't that a coach's role? Most of you have had coaches. Isn't that a coach's role to not only challenge and correct, but at the same time comfort and encourage? Which brought back a, a bad memory from high school and a good memory from college. When I was a senior at Wichita North, I had a high school track coach who constantly demoralized the individual team members, and our best was never enough. It was always reproving, rebuking. There was no encouragement to be found. And then I got to college and had a coach who was, he was constantly challenging and pushing each of us. But he also encouraged us when we excelled. He was a meek man. And having him as a coach felt like a breath of fresh air for me. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort in meekness, which reminded me of Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overcome within a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It also brought to mind 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. One aside that I want you to consider, unrelated to being a pastor, but very related to being a parent. So parents, listen up. I know, I know all of you have had to reprove a child and even take it to the next step of rebuking a child for some wrongdoing. And correction and discipline are very important and mentioned often in Scripture as part of training up a child in the ways of the Lord. However, I'd just like to consider and remember the, the balance to exhort through encouragement as that aspect is often forgotten. All the child can remember in his mind is the discipline. He doesn't understand why he or she is being disciplined. That's where encouragement and meekness comes into play. That can only be demonstrated through your love. So don't forget to love them.
Which ties in well with the text as we move on. And how is Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? We see here the sentence continues with all long-suffering. Which brings me to number three. Preach the word patiently. Let's face it, sanctification can be slow a process. Sometimes really slow. So Paul is explaining to Timothy, be long-suffering, be patient. Don't grow discouraged when you, see, when you don't see immediate results from your preaching. Over time, there will be fruit if you continue to teach consistently, pastorally, and patiently. Colossians 3.12. It's a great verse for all of us. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness. There's that word, long-suffering or patience. And that leads me to the fourth command. Preach the word doctrinally. Above all else, God's speaker must preach sound doctrine. It's not what the, the teacher has to say, but what does God's word have to say? Titus 2.1 says it very concisely, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Simply put, the preacher's duty is to deliver the message, not change it. And it's the fact that sound doctrine is critically important in each of our lives because what we believe, what we believe affects what we do. As one commentator said, behavior is an extension of theology. And there's a direct correlation between what we think and how we act. Consistently, pastorally, patiently, doctrinally. So I am looking in this mirror up here. But you are looking all at me. The self-examining question on my part, and I would pose to all of you, is are you seeing that kind of content in my preaching, in all the preaching here at New Hope Bible Church? If not, and I'm speaking on behalf of all the elders, how can we improve? I mean, God really convicted me. Am I doing what you say I should be doing? You are the ones that will know. I mean, God knows that you are the ones who listen. Are we falling short? Proverbs 9 9 says, I don't have that on her. Give instruction. I do. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. We want to be wise, and definitely we want to increase in learning. So may God continue to guide us. Well, let's move on to the next section, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. I call this section the urgency of the commission. As we begin here in verse 3, there's a key word that we can easily pass over. That word is the first word, the word for, for the time will come. 
Paul is now giving the reason to Timothy why strong biblical teaching is not only critical, but urgent. Many then and many now refuse to endure sound doctrine and instead will seek out teaching after their own lust, a teaching that will scratch them where they itch. And because they need to scratch an itch, Paul says that these people will gather up or heap to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. The account literally reminded me of a, of a dog needing to be scratched, either scratching itself or someone scratching the dog. In my, in my office, most of my employees own dogs. In fact, I would say 99% of them own dogs. And we consider ourselves a dog-friendly office, so my employees will come in frequently and say, can I bring in my dog today, especially if it's a new dog? Or they got another dog, say, so two dogs. Or they got another dog, I got three dogs. So I say, sure. So they bring the dog in, and immediately people come from all over into the lobby, and what do they do? They scratch the dog, pet the dog. What I notice though is as soon as they, they have to bend down to do that, they stand up, the dog runs over to the next person, scratch them, and runs over to the next person, scratch the dog. The dog doesn't care who's scratching it, just as long as it's being satisfied. Could it be that people wander from teacher to teacher just to get their itch scratched? I think that's what Paul is referring to here. So what are these lusts that people are craving? Could it be things like, meet my needs, make me smile, don't talk about sin, tell me how to be successful, don't be negative, doctrine is boring, theology doesn't matter, your sermons are just too long, make the gospel relevant, tell me more stories, make me laugh, build up my self-esteem, don't talk about hell. Pastor, we want you to be positive. We want a happy religion. In other words, if I sum it all up, tell me what I want to hear. And as a result, we see in verse 4, their ears become closed to the truth and instead are open to fables or myths. What is a fable or myth? The definition goes something like this. A fable or myth is simply a story especially one concerning the early history of a people, or one that explains some natural social phenomenon and usually and typically involves supernatural beings or gods. These appeal to people, yet these stories or myths are totally false, unfounded, unprovable, and a stark contrast to true reality. And where does that lead? Instead of sound and healthy doctrine, it ultimately leads to wrongful and healthy understanding, which does irreputable damage to the body and to the soul. As one man said, he who does not believe in God, he'll believe in anything. And aren't we seeing that in our world today? Congregations of comfortable, self-professing Christians listening to comfortable, man-infused stories that contain no Bible doctrine. Over time, these people can and do become prey of every false cult because their lives, lives lack a foundation in the truth of God's Word. This is the truth, if you think about it. Whenever God's truth is rejected, the human mind invents a substitute. 
And when that happens, as Romans 128 says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate or debased mind. And that leads me to my last section today, verse 5. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. I call this last the cost of the commission. I want to read this last verse out of the ESV and NASV just because you get a different take on the personal application for Timothy. So out of the ESV, as for you, those first three words, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The NASB, but as for you, as for you, Timothy, use self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's personalized. Timothy, you are personally to stand in sharp contrast to all those who would pervert the truth of the gospel. You are to stand strong, and yes, there will be a cost in doing so, but persevere to the end. And to this end, Paul gives Timothy four imperatives or responsibilities which he must carry out. First, watch now in all things. Be sober-minded, use self-restraint. In a day and age when people will go after anything because they have itching ears, Timothy must control himself and be alert so he does not get taken in himself. Paul uses this word sober-minded in 1 Timothy 3.2 in his list of qualifications for an elder. And this same verb is used in 1 Thessalonians 5 to denote a watchful attitude for Christ's coming. It reminds me of an airline pilot. And all of you probably been in an airplane and there's a storm going on and you're up there in it. The pilot must keep a very clear head when flying through this weather. And thus a pastor must keep a very clear head when problems and pressures of the ministry arise. Alistair Begg said it this way, a pastor must avoid being fat-headed, being puffed up with pride, or bobble-headed, bouncing around to every fact, doctrinal fad, or empty-headed, getting involved in ignorant controversies, or sick-headed, having a mind filled with immorality, or hot-headed, responding with sinful anger instead of gentleness. Instead, Paul is saying to Timothy that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are to be level-headed and respond with self-control, stability, and steadiness. In essence, as the phrase goes, steady as she goes, steady as she goes. Secondly, the cost will involve enduring afflictions or enduring hardships. Like Paul, who followed in the suffering of Christ for the sake of the gospel, Timothy, you can expect to walk this same way of suffering. And likewise, pastors of today can expect the same. You may be misunderstood. You may receive unfair criticism. You may be characterized as foolish or dated or irrelevant. But just as Christ rose from the dead victorious, so truth will eventually denounce falsehood. As Paul mentioned previously in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Thou therefore endure hardship, hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. Actually, the word evangelist only occurs two other places in the New Testament, Acts 21 and Ephesians 4, and denotes a person who brings good news 
And that good news is the gospel. Yet the fact here that Paul says, do the work, indicates that this will not be an easier natural task. So while Timothy's focus was to teach the word of God to those who belong to Christ, he was also to reach the unbelieving with the good news of the gospel. And lastly, make full proof of thy ministry. The term here in the Greek is plurifroio and means to completely accomplish a matter in full. More significantly, as I looked at this, it, it was used to describe a man to whom money has been entrusted and satisfies the investor who has given that money by when he returns, he will be rewarded. One author summed this up well by saying, the greatest use of life is to spend it for something that will outlast it. The greatest use of life is to spend it for something that will outlast it. It is only as we spend our lives in fully utilizing our divinely appointed ministry that we realize the greatest use of this fleeting life. So as I close today, a few thoughts as we've looked at the seriousness of the commission, the content of the commission, the urgency of the commission, and the cost of the commission. For all of you employed in the working world, most jobs come with a profile, a job description, that along with other details outlines the primary objectives of that position. In my company, every single one of my employees has a job profile, a job description, and a job goals. What are you going to accomplish? Paul had similar thoughts way back in Ephesians 4, 11, and 13. He is, and in that passage, he established the primary objective for pastors and teachers. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man unto the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Over the years here at New Hope, I've been asked on several occasions, and I know the other elders have been asked as well, what is the vision for the church? To which I've often replied with this verse, equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Then I ask or say, and how is this accomplished? By the preaching of God's word. It is the word of God that convicts the soul towards salvation. It is the word of God that changes hearts. It is the word of God that sanctifies a life to be more conformed to Christ. God has given us his precious word. And I know one day there will be a reckoning, an accountability on my part, on how well you have been fed as sheep. There will also be a reckoning for you on how you have matured in the faith and used what God has given you in your own ministry. My prayer for those of you who are not saved, who have not been born again, I pray that this holy word would convict you. You would be mindful of your sin and your separation from God and he would draw you to himself. That you would really fully realize that your days on this earth are numbered.
where will you spend eternity? And for those of you who are saved, I pray that you are being fully equipped for the work of the ministry. That his holy word is sanctifying you and that you are maturing and growing in the Lord until, as this verse says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, mature man, unto the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this account here from Paul to Timothy. Thank you for this account here from you to me and to every other one that works in, in the body of Christ to teach or to lead or to stand in this pulpit. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing here. I pray that each one here is being equipped that knows you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Father, for the lost. Um, although this message isn't directed specifically at those who do not know you as Lord and Savior, it is so applicable that the Word of God can penetrate a soul. It is the Word of God that we need. So, Lord, I just pray that you'll work in those hearts and draw them to yourself. So thank you for this time here this morning. In Christ's name, amen.